The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. In the history of failed beginnings, there are some famous products out there that failed spectacularly. Some of you might be able to relate to some of these or even remember some of these. For instance, in 1982, Colgate, which we all know as the toothpaste brand, decided to launch a line of frozen dinners. The logic was that you could eat a Colgate meal and then brush your teeth with Colgate toothpaste right afterwards. Now, just imagine going into the store and, you know, next to Healthy Choice and Banquet and, um, you know, Hungry Man is Colgate, all right? The problem was that the thought of toothpaste did not whet anyone's appetite. Along a similar vein, the Adolf Coors Company decided to, start sell sparkling, decided to start selling sparkling water in 1990 alongside their famous beers. But as you can imagine, it did not sell well at all because consumers just wanted beer from their favorite brand. And if you're into technology, there's a lot of hype these days about virtual reality. But did you know that in 1995, Nintendo released Virtual Boy, which claimed to give the virtual reality experience. You could put your eyes in these, in these red goggles. But the real reality was that, was that it was a super expensive system with low resolution, bad red and black graphics. That was a spectacular failure. And I'll give one more. In 1998, Frito-Lay released a line of chips with the WOW branding. Some of you guys might remember this like Doritos, wow, or Cheetos, wow. It was supposed to have all the flavor of regular potato chips, but being nearly fat-free because of a miracle compound called Olestra. But Olestra molecules were too large to be absorbed by the digestive tract and produced a result similar to a laxative. <laughs> Needless to say, the chips were discontinued. But when it comes to bad beginnings, the story of Nadab and Abihu may have all the rest beat. In our passage for today, Nadab and Abihu, the oldest sons of Aaron, the high priest, on the very first day of their new priesthood, what ought to have been a day of reverent joy and celebration at the glory of God coming down and filling the tabernacle that they had labored over, instead, they brought unauthorized fire into the tabernacle, into the sanctuary, and they immediately died. The new priesthood had gotten off to a very rocky start, to say the least. And questions arise as we read this passage. It's, it's a kind of a strange passage, right? I mean, most of us don't venture into Leviticus. But as we read this passage, we wonder, why did Nadab and Abihu do such a thing? Was God's punishment too severe? And why does this story matter for us today? Before we answer these questions, it's important to gain a better understanding of the events that led up to this point and the purpose of the whole, whole system of priesthood in the first place. Now, when it comes to understanding the Bible as a whole, there are many overarching themes that bind all the books together. And one important theme 
is the idea of presence. The idea of presence. Now, Adam and Eve, the first people, they lived in paradise, the Garden of Eden. But what made it paradise wasn't the animals or the trees. What made it paradise was the presence of God. They could intimately be in relationship with him. They could walk with him in the cool of the garden. And when they committed the first sin, their judgment was to be thrown out of his presence. They could no longer access the garden, which meant accessing God's presence directly as it was now guarded by the cherubim and the flaming sword, as Genesis 3 tells us. Yes, they lost the tree of life in that garden, but the tree of life was but a real representation of him who is life itself, the creator God. We know this because when we read the other end of the Bible, Revelation, the climax and focus is not on the tree of life that reappears in Revelation 22, but on God who dwells in the very midst of his people. So one way to read the Bible is to see it as a long history of how the presence of God is restored to mankind once again. And when we come to the book of Leviticus, especially the preceding chapters, Leviticus 8 and 9, this seems to be a high point in Israel's history because as we read in chapter 9, verse 23 through 24, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Here, the presence of God is revealed to the people in a spectacular way. This is is an exciting thing. This is an amazing thing. Have you ever wondered why Exodus devotes so many chapters to tabernacle construction. I know some of you are probably reading through the Bible in one year, and it's not placed there to discourage you in your reading through the Bible in one year plan, right? Though it is a difficult portion to get through. It's because preparing a place for the presence of God to reside was such an important thing because it was a place fit for a king. And why is Leviticus about all these sacrifices with such detailed instructions, right? If you ever read through Leviticus 1 through 7, it talks about the sin offerings, the the guilt offerings, the peace offerings, and gives all these, you know, very detailed instructions. The reason was it was to establish a way for Israel to have a relationship with God. Now imagine you were an Israelite, and you had seen months and months of preparation You heard the saws and the chisels and the mallets late into the morning, or, you know, early in the morning, all the way late into the night, and you had listened to Moses' long speeches droning on and on about the various laws day after day until your feet were tired and your eyelids were drooping. And so when the whole nation finally gathers together for the establishment of the priesthood in Leviticus 8 and 9, this is a really, really big deal all the preparation, all the plans that they had done were finally coming to fruition. God was going to come and dwell among them. And Aaron and his sons were to play a key role in maintaining this relationship with God. Through the priests and the sacrificial systems, 
people could approach God and be made right with him so that God could continue to dwell with them. And God's presence is, after all, what makes Israel special, what made them special. They were chosen people because God had chosen to live among them, to have an intimate relationship with this specific nation. But something goes terribly wrong with Nadab and Abihu that threatens to put everything into jeopardy. As we come to our text today, there are three lessons that God's word teaches us from Nadab and Abihu's tragic mistake. There are three lessons that God's word teaches us from Nadab and Abihu's tragic mistake. The first lesson is this. Don't underestimate your sinfulness. Don't underestimate your sinfulness. In verse one we read, now Nadab and Abihu the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded him. Now, what exactly did Nadab and Abihu do that led to their judgment and death? What did they do wrong? There's a lot of debate over this throughout the centuries. For instance, the Jewish rabbis offered 12 different explanations for this sudden demise. I'll spare you and I won't go into all 12, but I think the simplest explanation is what it says right there in the text. The sin was that they offered unauthorized fire. Now some of your translations might say strange fire or profane fire. Now what exactly was this unauthorized fire and what made this fire strange or profane? The Bible doesn't outright tell us But biblical scholars generally agree that they had most likely taken coals from elsewhere besides the altar, the the altar of God that was used for the sacrifices, to burn the incense in their censers, which if you don't know what a censer is, it's like a small ceremonial lantern pot where you can, that could be hung from a pole or can be carried by hand and, you know, the incense burns. And Leviticus 6.12, we know this because Leviticus 6.12 says this, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil. So we know that there was instruction um, given that this fire was supposed to come from the altar of God and perhaps Nadab and Abihu took these coals from somewhere else, you know, took it from their own campsite, or wherever it might be. But lest we miss the point, the bigger problem wasn't that the fire came from the altar or from somewhere else, but that they had done something that God had not commanded them to do. Right? We read that as well in verse 1. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And you would think that Nadab and Abihu would know better. You would think that they would know better. You would think that having Moses, for instance, as an uncle, whom the Bible consistently praises for his humility and his obedience to God's law, you would think that he would have influenced them to obey God faithfully. And you would think that perhaps their privileged position as priests of the whole nation, as people who had the honor of approaching God 
in a way that no one else could, who served as a go-between, as a mediator for the common Israelite and almighty God, would model wisdom and careful observance of God's law. You would think that all the detailed instruction they had just received about sacrifices in the prior chapters would have impressed upon them the idea that you can't just do whatever you want in the presence of God. But as the story so powerfully illustrates, the human heart is exceedingly sinful. Its natural bent is to oppose God and to go its own way, to think that it knows better than God. We cannot rely on position, privilege, or background or upbringing to keep us from sin. Perhaps it's because March Madness is on the mind, but oftentimes successful basketball players have the advantage of athletic parents who can pass on their athletically inclined and height advantage genes, right, to, other, to their sons. So for example, there's Bill Walton and Luke Walton. There's Del Curry and Stephen Curry. There's Doc Rivers and Austin Rivers, and I could go on and on. And not only that, their parents' fame and wealth gives them access to elite programs and the best training and private lessons with former NBA stars. And while I agree that there is some advantage to, there's, there's a great advantage to being raised in a Christian family, to be taught scripture from an early age, it is not a firm foundation to stand upon. Sin, our rebellion against God, is deep in the human heart, and no one is immune, not even the sons of the high priest and the nephews of Moses. So we too, must take care lest we fall. Regardless of whether we've been a Christian for a long time or just a year, or if we're in positions of leadership, or we grew up with Christian parents, or even if we are a theological nerd and we can quote systematic theology, that's not where we place our trust. That's not what will keep us from sin. We must also be vigilant and on guard lest sin take root in our hearts and make us callous towards God and his commands. As priests, Nadab and Abihu should have been repeatedly reminded of this sin, even as they slaughtered animal after animal during the inauguration ceremony. So much blood was necessary to atone for sin, and yet their hearts neglected to notice the pervasiveness of sin. The sacrifices should have been a sobering reminder to guard themselves against violating God's law. I want to ask you today, where have you grown neglectful or callous towards God's commands? Have you allowed sin to take root in small places in your heart? Perhaps it's greed or desiring what someone else wants um, or growing bitter towards someone who has wronged you. And maybe you've seen someone's sin vividly on display, whether it's a harsh word or someone abandoning the faith or sexual indiscretion, and thought, that will never happen to me. Nadab and Abihu remind us that no one is immune from sin, so we must not underestimate our own sinfulness. We would be wise to heed the words of the Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen, who says, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. God calls us to live lives of repentance, to daily turn away from sin, and to cling to Christ in faith. 
But not only did Nahab and Abihu underestimate their sin, they also had another big problem that led to their death. They didn't take the holiness of God seriously. They didn't take the holiness of God seriously, which brings us to our second lesson. Take the holiness of God seriously. So first off, what is the holiness of God? To be holy means to be set apart, and God the creator is fundamentally different from us, his creatures. He is totally unlike us. Unlike us, he is perfect in love and justice and mercy. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is uncreated. He is not dependent on anything. R.C. Sproul, in his modern classic, The Holiness of God, puts it this way. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. Transcendentally separate. He's separate from us in such a way that it is more of a difference in kind rather than degree. Let me give you an illustration. When I was younger, I had an obsession with fighter planes. Every time I went to the library, I would check out every book on fighter planes I could get my hands on. And I would read about the classic fighters of World War II, such as the P-51 Mustang and the P-38 Lightning, all the way to the more modern fighters, such as the F-14 Tomcat, of Top Gun fame, or the F-15 Eagle, or the F-16 Falcon, I would know their specs inside and out. And one way I judged an airplane's superiority was its top speed. Now, there are some really fast planes out there that go into the Mach 2s and 3s, and there's even the X-15 experimental jet, which is rocket-powered and reaches Mach 6.7, or which is approximately 4,500 miles per hour. But then there's the speed of light, which travels at a mind-boggling 671 million miles per hour. Compared to our fastest vehicles, the speed of light is on a whole nother level. It's transcendentally fast. It's transcendentally separate in comparison. And that transcendental difference is but a poor reflection of what God's holiness really means. So that's why we can talk about God's holy love or God's holy justice. It's a love and justice that's far beyond even the most impressive examples of human love and justice. So when God is holy in his purity, in his moral perfection, you can bet that it's a transcendental purity. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And given that God is holy in purity and moral goodness, his very presence is deadly to sinners. His justice and purity is so great that he must judge and destroy sin just by the very nature of who he is. It's as if you put the sun into a dark room, no matter how dark that room is, it would suddenly be filled with a blazing light. It's not that the sun is specifically targeting the darkness, but it's simply because the sun is being the sun. That's why in verse 2 of Leviticus 10, it says, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. When the presence of God comes into contact with sin, complete destruction is only in keeping with the nature of the holy presence of God. 
Elsewhere in Exodus 33:3, after the people had rebelled against God by worshiping a golden calf, God says this to Israel, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people. God knew that if his holy presence came into contact with the stubborn, wayward people, they would be utterly destroyed. Now, as priests, Nadab and Abihu should have known this all too well. The whole point of the Levitical instruction was so that God could live among his people without them being destroyed. God was giving them a way, a, a path, an avenue to have a relationship with him. And the reason why there were so many rules and regulations wasn't because God just wanted to make things unnecessarily difficult or because he's unreasonably demanding. It is because he is so holy and we are so sinful. The gap between us and God is one of infinite distance. But Nadab and Abihu fail to take the holiness of God seriously. They approached him carelessly, and underneath their carelessness was a proud heart because they thought they could approach him in their own way, that they could bring unauthorized fire into his presence. At the root of their attitude was the same sin as Adam and Eve, who questioned the commandment of God that forbid them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Both Adam and Eve and Nadab and Abihu reversed the roles of creature and creator. They saw themselves as superior to the creator God, able to judge whether God's commandment was worth keeping. Nadab and Abihu thought along these lines. God has commanded us to only bring this type of fire into his presence, but I know better. His words are not that important. It's fine to do it my way. On the surface, this seems innocuous, harmless, but it is arrogance of the highest order. When we consider God's holiness, his perfect character, his perfect commands, his infinitude of love, mercy, justice, and knowledge, how can we possibly think that we know better? But yet we do. We become like Nadab and Abihu every time we indulge in a little sin. It's all right for me to steal some time at work. It's all right for me to lie to my spouse a little bit. It's all right for me to let my lustful gaze linger a little bit. It's all right for me to idolize my children, career, or wealth just a little bit. Unless we think that we're off the hook because we're not priests like Nadab and Abihu, the truth is that we, the church, are now the new priesthood of God. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are representatives of God to the world, to those who don't know Christ. And Moses says to Aaron in Leviticus 10.3, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. For those who are near God, for those who serve him as priests, which is every Christian, our call is to sanctify God, to make him holy, not because we add to his holiness in any way, but because he chooses to reveal his holiness through us. Why he would use us in such a way is a mystery, but it is a humbling 
And it is a high calling that God will use us to be his priest today, to display his glory and his holiness to the world. So the question is, are you taking God's holiness seriously today? For those of us who are Christians, we can take great comfort knowing that we will not be, de- be destroyed like Nadab and Abihu, even in the face of God's holiness, as we approach him through the righteousness of Christ. Praise God for that, right? Yet these Old Testament texts were written for our instruction. And when we do take God's holiness seriously, so many wonderful things happen. I'll just point out a few. Our appreciation for God, for the gospel deepens. We recognize all the more how undeserving we are of grace in light of God's absolute perfection. We're humbled and our hearts are stirred afresh with love for the person and work of Jesus. When we take God's holiness seriously, we experience the joy of obedience. Sin really does make us miserable. We've all been there. It robs us of the joy we have when we are walking intimately with God. And another, our awe and reverence for God increases. We see him as beautiful and love him for himself. Knowing God better, we worship and live for him more fully. I'm reminded of a passage in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. When Lucy and Susan first hear of Aslan from the beavers, they are surprised that Aslan is a lion and not a man. And this is the conversation that ensues. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then isn't he safe, said Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not safe. When we come to recognize his holiness, we learn that he is not safe, but he's the good king. He's truly worthy of our worship, of our whole hearts, our devotion, our all, and he is for us through Jesus Christ. I'm not sure how you all are feeling right now, but right now, you may be feeling weighed down a little bit because we've been talking about the heavy and difficult topics of sin and holiness. And despite the sobering lessons we've looked at so far from this passage, there's one more encouraging lesson that we must not miss. This is a third and final lesson. Rejoice in the better priesthood. Rejoice in the better priesthood. After Nadab and Abihu die, Moses gives some very interesting instructions in verses four through seven. In verses four and five, instead of Aaron and his remaining two sons who are still alive, Eleazar and Ithamar, instead of them coming and carrying their their fallen brothers out of the sanctuary, their relatives, Mishael and Elzaphan, carry them out instead. And in verses six and seven, Aaron and his sons are forbidden from mourning. Instead, Moses says, let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. So they weren't allowed to mourn, but everyone else could mourn. So the question is, why couldn't they touch the dead bodies and mourn? Here's the reason. 
As priests, they were set apart. They were holy unto God. And because God is life itself, they as priests could not become associated with death, which is the opposite of who God is. If the priests touched the dead bodies or mourned, they would become unclean. And we often forget that death is unnatural. While Disney's Lion King may tell us that death is just part of the circle of life, the Bible tells us death entered the world because of sin. Why? Because sin severs our relationship with God. It cuts us off from he who is the source of life. And impurity cannot exist with holy purity. Evil cannot exist with holy goodness. And so with sin, we fall into death because we are cut off from him who is perfect. That is the Lord God. That is Yahweh, the great I am. Thus Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar could not touch the dead bodies and could not mourn their fallen brothers, for to do so would be to pass the impurity of sin and death onto them, polluting them so they could not offer pure service to God. As we can see, these priests were severely limited in their power and scope, even on a good day. And on a bad day, they were violating God's law and being consumed by the fire of God's presence. Now, knowing their Old Testament, knowing Leviticus, how do you think certain Jews felt when centuries later a carpenter turned rabbi from Galilee enters the house of a man named Jairus and sees a little dead girl lying in bed? And instead of recoiling in horror and swiftly exiting as not to become unclean, he goes to the edge of her bed and taking her lifeless hand, he says, Talitha kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. Instead of becoming polluted with sin, life and power flow out of him so that according to Mark 5, immediately the girl got up and began walking. And what do you think when people thought when this same man coming to Bethany because his friend Lazarus had died and seeing the mourners and the sorrow of Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, he wept. He wept, but he was not made unclean. Instead, he was deeply moved, stirred to anger. And he orders a stone to be removed and he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus rises from the dead. Again, impurity was not passed to him, but the opposite. The ultimate uncleanliness of death is healed. It is made clean with life. For this man is Jesus. Jesus, the presence of God come down, taking on our humanity, but without sin. He inaugurates a better priesthood, one that far exceeds Aaron and his sons. Whereas Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire and violated God's commandments, Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. And whereas Aaron and his sons could become involuntarily unclean by associating with death, Jesus willingly became unclean. He took on our pollutions, our sins, our rebellious deeds, and he knew death. He knew what it was like to be cut off from the Father as he hung there on that cross so that you and I might be clean forever that we might have the presence of God forever. 
now in the person of the Holy Spirit, but in the future, in the fullness of the Trinity, as we dwell, as God dwells among us. The Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron, could only offer the blood of goats and bulls. And even the high priest himself had to repeatedly offer sacrifices because he himself was sinful. But Jesus, our true high priest, according to Hebrews 9, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And after our great high priest offered up the greatest sacrifice of all himself, he rose again, beginning the fulfillment of the plan of God to undo death. This is what we look forward to, right? And he ascended to the right hand of the Father and even now is your advocate pleading his righteousness before the throne of God. It is in Jesus that everything finds its fulfillment. He solves the problem of the presence of God consuming sinners by becoming the perfect high priest who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice, who is the perfect bridge between God and man so that our relationship with the triune God can never again be put in jeopardy. We will never become good priests to the world, priests who honor the transcendence of God with holy living and by rooting out sin, and yet who are full of compassion for the weak and the needy if we do not first know our great high priest. And not just when we come to faith for the first time, but we need to daily come to him and be reminded that he has transformed us and empowered us to live unto holiness and to be a royal priesthood. The story of Nadab and Abihu shows our pervasive sin and God's great holiness, but it also points to our true high priest, Jesus Christ, who bridges that gap, who is our mediator, who didn't just risk his life daily in service as a priest, but gave up his life that we might become part of his priesthood. Our hearts need this, even as we recognize our sin and take God's holiness seriously, or else we might only feel condemnation and discouragement rather than zeal and encouragement to live all the more obediently. For we are not devastated to despair when we stumble and fall, for we plead the merit of our high priest's blood. Nor are we complacent because the holiness of God is being worked in us day by day as we, as we become like our great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness and yet was without sin. Let's pray together. Father God, as we reflect upon this passage it's a difficult passage, a passage that is heavy and reminds us of your great holiness and our sinfulness. And yet, 
we can rejoice. We can rejoice because though we fail time and time again to, to live as you have called us, our righteousness, our hope, our foundation is not in ourselves, but it is in Jesus Christ. And in him, we have become holy. And in him, we are empowered to grow and to become more and more the image of God that you have called us to be. And we rejoice because there is now a better priesthood. There's a priesthood of Jesus Christ that reminds us, that shows us that there is someone who has overcome the power of sin and death, who has overcome all our frailties and yet also meets us where we are. We rejoice in that better priesthood that far exceeds that of Aaron and his sons. And we rejoice that in him we have found life everlasting. In him we can live for you. And so we pray that you would, you would work that in us today. We're thankful for Jesus. So in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.